0: Hi everybody, JP here. What a week, what a month, what a year. Every day seems to bring another escalation in the saga of the COVID-19 virus. Businesses are closing, elective cases are being canceled, and last week we all learned that this year's aa meeting will not be held. These are trying times, but we as a people have withstood worse, even in my own short lifetime. Those of us in medicine still have patients and will still treat them. Those of us with families still know our obligations, and we'll still meet them. We will all keep the wheels turning, while protecting the vulnerable folks among us. So stay safe, everybody, be responsible, but above all, keep a level head. Reasonable caution is a far cry from panic. And in the meantime, you can bet that come hell or high water, the Neurosurgery Podcast will keep broadcasting loud and clear until we all can meet again. Now, let's get started.
1: Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things
0: neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Note that this is not a cme event and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization now let's get started
1: great so today on the nurse surgery podcast we're delighted to have back alan levy alan had one of the most popular podcasts about surviving the oral boards one of our first podcasts And Alan, uh, I would introduce him as my boss. He's the chairman of neurosurgery at University of Miami. He was also my mentor when I did my fellowship here. And today we're gonna talk about uh, one of his specialties, which is being a clinician scientist. Uh, Welcome aboard, Alan.
2: Hey, well, thank you, uh, Mike Mike and and JP. It's an honor to be back here. I'm thrilled coming back and seeing how how fantastic these uh, podcasts have gone. Um, and, uh, congratulations to you both for, uh, doing a great service to, uh, neurosurgery.
1: It's all because of the guests. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, am going to ask you today, and JP has, I'm um, just, he's been wanting to do this podcast for some time about something that's been on my mind, cause I feel like I've been sort of a failure in this realm, which is, uh, you know, when you're in residency, it, there's this high bar of like, you're supposed to be a clinician scientist. You're supposed to do surgery, see patients, you're supposed to do NIH-funded or extramurally-funded research, right, and where that's all headed and changed? Because it is changing,
2: right? It's changing. I I think uh, what's changing is that, um, you know, in some good ways and some bad ways, but I think it still exists that that is a desire for um, faculty chairs, uh, for program directors to recruit neurosurgeons who have that goal in mind
1: do you want to walk us through because you have a very interesting history yourself with this right do you want us to to walk us through what what your earlier years were like
2: definitely so i came from the the university of toronto did my residency training there and that program has always had a strong uh predilection towards training Re, you know, clinician scientists. That was and under Alan Hudson, right? Was mostly under Charles Tatter, but it's okay. it's it's Jim Drake, um, not Jim Drake, but Jim Rutka and 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 Andres Lozano. It, it's been longstanding okay. uh, that they they've uh, desired to to train those types of residents. They got the opportunity to do basic research, as many programs do give, but in in that particular program, you could have two, three, sometimes seven dedicated years to do uh, basic science training. And most residents at that time would get a PhD. And so... Let me stop you
1: there. Seven years of research. Absolutely. Plus seven years or six years of clinical training.
2: Absolutely. 14 years. Yes. Wow. Okay. So, um. He
1: says it so casually. <laughs> <laughs> it's only 14 years you're
2: yeah, I, I could give you examples of that. Um, fortunately, I, I, I trained in Toronto and then I came to Miami, did my PhD. I was lucky enough uh, and worked hard to be able to finish it in three years, and uh, then finished my residency. Did a clinical fellowship that included basic science. Uh, And then when I started in Miami 23 years ago, um, I got hired on with this vision of being a clinician scientist.
1: Wow. And uh, so you did your residency first. Completed and then did the PhD? No,
2: I did the PhD within the residency, oh, within the residency. as a PGY-3, so to speak, right. 4. And, yeah. But in
1: America, the model is mostly like either MSTP or something like that, right? That's much more common where you're in medical school and you do your PhD. Correct. Or before your medical school degree or something like that, right?
2: Most people do their MD-PhD combined during medical school.
1: Now, I remember at USC there was this common... Thing that we would say like if you took in an MD PhD guy, they ended up doing zero research when they finished. What's What's that myth about? Is there any validity
2: to it? Uh, it happens, but uh, there, there's a lot that do research for a year or two during residency because most residencies have that opportunity. There, there's a really fantastic program, and I really uh, credit the NIH uh, for putting together the uh, r25 program, which allows, residents to take that year or two of research during their residency and do it in a very structured way. Uh, Apply for this grant, this one-year grant during their uh, residency and, and the whole um, basis for the grant is that they they have a mentor, they do it structured, and what the NIH wants to see at the end of the day is that when they finish their residency, that they will go on and do further research with either K or R funding. And uh, the program is held up to that standard of, of having their graduates from the R25 do that successfully.
1: And for the younger folks in the audience, can you just indicate for us what the K and the R stand for in the in the types of grants?
2: The um, K is like a clinician scientist development award, and it's it's particularly suited for uh, MD specialists. Uh, and it's usually uh, with you have you 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 need to get it in sort of the first three to five years after your specialty training, um, and there are different K awards. Uh, but the R award, whether it's an R01, an R21, those are uh, scientific awards uh, that you can apply for as well, but it's not as much of a training award. Got it, got it. Okay. And the K award usually has a mentor as part of it.
0: Right. And for some of our listeners in training, um, that grant geared toward residents, about when during residency do people generally start applying for that, start thinking about it? Um, I'm an intern, for example. When, when, when in the residency track do people start starting that process?
2: So it's awarded to the institution, the R25. So mm-hmm. we, we have one here at the University of Miami. Baylor has one. Uh, there's probably somewhere between 9 and 12 uh, nurse surgery programs that have that uh, ability to offer that to their trainees.
0: Okay. So it's an institutional grant, not for the individual resident? Correct. Okay. JP, when you
1: were on the interview trail and then now at Rush, like, how did this weigh into your thinking? Like, so you know, you're you're
0: getting started, right? How did what? Do you, what's your perspective on this? Well, me personally, um, I have never done much bench work and much you know wet work, basic science um, research, um, but I have tried to be involved in as much clinical research as possible while I was here, trying to continue that now during residency, and so for me looking for a program that had some amount of dedicated research time, or more importantly even, whether or not there was a structured time for it, had resources, um, and had a good infrastructure, not just for getting papers out, but for supporting you uh, in the process of of generating your work, be it with statistical support, um, good illustration, um, a a good uh, cadre of attendings who are frequent publishers, who have connections within the journals and can kind of guide you in that process, people who serve as editors so they know what the editors are looking for. That was incredibly important to me when I was on the interview trail. Um, Because for myself, I see a career in academics and I think a lot of the people who were interviewing me at um, higher tier programs and more academic leaning programs were looking for that too.
2: So the different paths you can do a basic science path of research during your residency you can do a clinical path right. of you know producing very high quality clinical papers different different strokes for different folks.
0: Yeah so now Dr. Levy if that's kind of how you got to where you are today tell us a bit about what your life is like you're the chairman of the of the department you have all of your basic lab research that's going on the Miami project is as busy as a institution can be at the same time you have a thriving clinical practice how do you wear all those hats
2: well uh, you know time time allotment is critical uh, to just focusing on the basic science question so I, I had a had a lab for twelve years um, and got um, governmental funding during that time. I got other types of funding as well and kept it open essentially for 12 years. Had residents work there, had uh, lab techs, uh, and some postdocs, and it was fantastic. I loved it, and I did have protected time for that. Uh, As you get busier, one of the challenges is being able to focus uh, on all of the important elements of the basic science and the clinical, um, and so what I did personally is about after 12 years, and now I'm in my 23rd year of practice, um, I uh, started to do less basic science research and did more clinical translational uh, trial research. Um, and. Um, that that worked well for me because I was basically doing trial research on things that I developed in the lab. Right. Uh, so everybody has a different path. That's the path that I, I did. We're now actually doing some more basic science work 23 years later because clinical questions then bring up basic science questions. And so, uh, you know, it, it's still uh, moving forward. It's a very exciting part of neurosurgery. It's something that uh, I think... Uh, trainees and neurosurgeons can make a huge difference because they, uh, it, they will understand better the clinical questions that may need basic science work to, to move up the sale.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, right, historically and actually structurally, neurosurgery is one of the very few, maybe the only field that has so much uh, committed time, as Harvey Cushing set it up, right, that's almost required of residencies, right, a year or two years of somewhat protected, used to be completely protected before work hours, uh, of, of research time, and sometimes even more, right, like at UVA, uh, and obviously in Canada could be up to seven years, right? <laughs> Correct. So how do you pack it all in? So, okay, so you're done training, so, you know, neurosurgery is more than a full-time job. You have children, your, your children are grown now, but, you know, you've got hobbies, you like do marathons, you do all these things. How does one find the time to also do the research?
2: Yeah, again, it's it's time commitment, being efficient. I think you've had a bunch of guests on this podcast who have uh, exemplified those those uh, those goals, and uh, it's it's just about uh, you know cla- getting your time commitment's correct, and obviously working hard.
1: You know, I love it, because, like, I was having breakfast uh, last week in the in the doctor's dining room, and I saw one of the medicine doctors. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I thought you would laugh. I didn't. I haven't seen you in ages. He goes, oh, I'm on my clinical uh, service now. I'm like, oh, what does that mean? He goes, well, like, for three weeks out of a year, I have to round in the hospital. I'm like, well, what do you, like, do the rest of the time? He goes, well, I have a lab or I teach students. I'm like, so, like, during that whole time, you don't see patients, and they're like, they're so like, yeah, and then these are not Nobel Prize winning doctors, by the way. I mean, not, not to be disparaging, but they're doing what we do, right, right. essentially. But so, have- so you raise
2: a great point. So protected time, what is protected, yeah, what is protected time? Yeah, it, it is, uh, you know, as one trainee uh, put it uh, well on a, on a Twitter feed that I saw, that do, being a clinician scientist means being 100% clinical, and 100% science. And if you can do those two, you, you'll be successful in both.
1: Well, you know, I think this is so interesting to me at a, at a grander level. And I was, who was I talking to Dan Resnick, about the boards. And and I know that uh, because you teach the, the official courses for the boards, you can't really give the exam, right? But otherwise, you'd be giving the exam for the AB&S, obviously. But he was talking about how it's a commitment of time. It's like eight weeks a year, six weeks a year. And I didn't realize this until that lawsuit with internal medicine that the American, what is the American Society of Internal Internists, that their board examiners and their board people, that's their full-time job. Mm. And they're paid like 300,000 a year in cardiology to do that and and they don't really do much else. Whereas like our examiners, I mean, it's like eight weeks out of your life that you just do on top of everything, right? Yep. Is that accurate.
2: I think that's accurate, right? I, I think I, I like as I, you said. I'm not part of the 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 ABNS uh, board, but they do. If you are on the board, it is a huge commitment. As as in many things that you do, like your commitment to the uh, the to the joint section and to the AA and To the podcast. It's
1: like and I mean, I
2: mean you know, like yeah, we love the
1: podcast, <laughs> but it's like, but what? Maybe it's something that we as neurosurgeons are just idiots. Like we we're just we're stupid. We just like we want to do all these things, right? We want to pack the life in. Wow. It's,
2: it's a great uh, brotherhood, uh, sisterhood, and fraternity.
1: Okay, so so tell us then, you are a medical student, maybe like what, a first year or something like that, sure. and you think your, 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 your desire is to be a clinician scientist. Give that individual some, some fatherly advice.
2: So uh, pick a program that uh, will promote that, that has the resources to promote that, uh, be ambitious, work hard, find a mentor. Um,
1: and how do you know they have resources? Like How, how, do, you, how do you ascertain that because you're not really experiencing yeah.
2: this? I mean, one way is to look and see where their uh, NIH Blue Ridge ranking is. It's a sort of indirect measure of how much NIH funding that department has. But I, I think during your interviews, Uh, As a medical student, you can probe and find out how many scientists have affiliations with the department. Certainly ask the residents and say, hey, you know, how much uh, scientific work can you do during your residency? Uh, Does the program have the resources? Those are different ways where you can find that out.
1: I'm gonna gonna ask you a kind of weird question because I know a lot of folks are interested in this. I kind of feel like the programs that are really good at that are also not as busy clinically sometimes. And so is one somewhat forced to choose sometimes between the busy clinical places and the busy research places? And maybe I'm wrong, this may be a stereotype because everybody just wants to hate on right. everybody else, right?
2: <laughs> I, I think there is some correlation, but when I think of the you know top five or six NIH Blue Ridge programs in, in, in neurosurgery, they are all busy, clinical programs as well. So a lot of it just simply has to do with size.
1: So a lot; those are the programs, obviously, people hear about a lot, right? Those are the right. ones that get ranked super high on the list as we mm-hmm. do the match season and all right. this, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay, great, great, excellent. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the Miami Project now? Because I'm sure people are interested.
2: Uh, Well, we we have uh, three or four clinical trials going on. There's a hypothermia or cooling trial for acute spinal cord injury. We just finished two Schwann cell trials for both acute, subacute, and chronic spinal cord injury. Uh, We finished a stem cell clinical trial a couple of years ago was multicenter. Uh, And uh, what is Occupying most of my time right now, which I'm really excited about, is doing a trial for uh, devastating long-segment peripheral nerve injuries in the human and, and supplementing, uh, supplementing traditional repairs with autologous Schwann cells. I know that's a mouthful, but that that is some of the, the stuff we're working on now.
0: Are you enrolling?
2: Absolutely. How
0: can people find the
2: trial? Uh, definitely on uh, the... Um, uh, clinical uh, Definitely on clinicaltrials.gov, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. And shout-out to some of our uh, younger researchers here, Bobby Stark, uh, Mike Ivan.
2: All doing great Super work. successful. Right? Brain tumors, vascular. Yeah, yeah. We've got it covered.
1: Excellent excellent great great well thank you for coming back on the podcast we have to have you come back and talk about running marathons or something of that sort
2: well again thank you for the invitation and both of you congratulations on doing a great service to neurosurgery
0: great
2: thanks dr you.